Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. thank you tonight, Lord, and we are few in number, but your word is true, and Lord, we need to hear from you. We live in a world, Lord, and now in a country where people have abandoned your word. They no longer know truth. They're blinded to the truth, and it could be in organizations that they join or political or positions that they hold, but we've seen a lot happen in the last few weeks with Israel coming under attack by the Palestinians, the Hamas, who infiltrated their air, their states and killed so many, kidnapped, we hardly hear about those who have been kidnapped and being held in Gaza. And Father, uh, a war is ready to break out. It's ongoing, but it's seemingly could get much larger than just Israel and Hamas. So Father, we pray your grace be in this situation. We pray, Lord, that many eyes would look to you. We live in a nation, Lord, that all they know is sound bites and they don't know the truth. Help us to be people of the truth, people of your word. We pray, Lord, that more people would seek truth and be found in your churches. Even this Sunday, Lord, that many would desire to come and hear your word being proclaimed in churches throughout our land. And I pray for the pastors, Lord, that they would proclaim your word without fear and proclaim your word in truth. So be with us tonight, Lord, as we look into your word from Deuteronomy 25 and 26. Let it bless our souls. As we hear what the Spirit says to the church, to this church, this night we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've been thinking about this, something I've never done, but there's just so many questions, and I'm trying to think of the best way to do it. So I'm going to give something a try. I'll send out an email to our church body probably tomorrow, tomorrow because I'm uh, busy all day in class on Friday, so I'll have to get it done. But uh, just to deal with questions, if people have questions about stuff that's going on in our world today, I know that Palestinians and Hamas are a great issue. Israel came under attack, and uh, women were raped, babies were killed and beheaded in Israel. Uh, elderly people were killed, many were taken captive, and it's as if Israel was the enemy. That's what the world is saying. So I'm going to send out an email and maybe only deal with one question on each Sunday. I don't want to change from teaching the Word of God, but, you know, there are people who have questions, and if we can answer it via the Word of God, what does God's Word say? I want to at least give that a try. So if you're 
listening to this recording, you can email the question through the church website, but um, through our church email that you can find on the website. But um, for the church body, I'll send out and let people know about that. And let's just start handling some of these things. We have youth today growing up, not having a clear understanding of God's word. And uh, we've discovered that adults in churches also don't have a clear understanding of God's word. So let's go ahead and look into those things and see if we can find God's truth in our world today. And the need of truth is big. So that's something I've just been pondering this week, and uh, we'll give it a shot. We'll see how it goes. That makes me nervous, by the way. I don't, I've never felt that I'm the Bible answer man, but, uh, you know, I think we need to not shy away from handling tough questions as well. So 25 and 26, we have some laws that God gives to Israel. He's preparing them to enter into the promised land, the things that they are to do, things that they are not to do once they are established. So we're at that point where Moses is telling the people, you're going to enter into the promised land. You're going to get established in the promised land. And once you're established, these are the things that you are to do. So preparing them for not only entering the promised land, how they should conduct themselves once in the promised land, but also preparing them for time where Moses would be no more. They would have different elders and rulers over them. Joshua initially, uh, Phinehas, the son of Aaron, is already the high priest at this point. Soon Joshua would be have hands laid on him by Moses, and Moses will not be with the children of Israel because the Lord is going to take him home to be with the Lord. And so he's preparing them with these various laws that were given to Israel. But in these various laws, we find some pretty cool things that are actually applicable to the time of Christ, like this uh, opening section I titled the overall chapter in 25, 40 blows, because this is where we get the limit of the number of blows or stripes that were to be laid upon a man in judgment. And they were limited by God to not exceed the number 40. And it causes us to think of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll give you a different thought that did not dawn on me uh, in my thinking until years ago when the Passion of the Christ came out and our whole church on a Wednesday night went to go see the movie. And uh, I watched the scourging of Christ in that movie and I was trying to count and I lost count. But there was something that dawned on me in that scourging that I'd never thought of before. And now reading, I find that I'm not the only one because uh, some of the theologians have also thought about this as well. And we'll get to that just in a moment. Let's talk about the initial law first. And we pick up in verses 1 through 3. If there's disputes, they were to go to the courts to have judgment made. One through three, if there is a dispute between men and they come to the court and the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous 
and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, according to his guilt, with a certain number of blows. Forty blows may be given to him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. So if there's dispute between two men, and it comes to the court, it, it can't be settled between them, and they bring it to the city gate, and maybe even if the city rulers or judges can't resolve the thing, it could make it all the way to the Supreme Court or the Temple of God or the Tabernacle of God at this time. As it says in Deuteronomy 17:8, if a matter arises too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, between one punishment or another, matters of controversies within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So they were, if they couldn't resolve a situation between two individuals and they take it to the court system, usually the city gate is where that was handled. If it was beyond the local rulers, then they would go to the tabernacle or temple to have it judged. But here it's really talking about there is uh, innocence proclaimed on one side and guilt on the other. And if the guilty man it's deemed that he should be beaten. And you think that's cruel. And I, I was thinking about this yesterday going over this passage. Um, we don't read about Israel setting up a whole prison system like we have in our country. They just meted out judgment. The judgment was done and the matter was closed. They didn't send them to jail for a year or two years or for life. They just dealt with it. It was either capital punishment or uh, other judgments could be made. They, uh, they could have to pay a fine. They could have to reimburse a person and plus 20% on top of it. They had other judgments. But if it came to blows, they were to be beaten with blows. It could have different numbers, one stripe or up to 40, but no more. And notice a couple of things about this, that the one who is the judge that says, all right, he deserves 40 stripes. The judge had to watch it happen. Now, two possibilities because of this. One, I think my first thought was, God required the judge to watch the judgment happen because it would keep an honest man, a righteous man, from being excessively cruel. If it's out of sight, out of mind, then you could move on to the next case and not even think about the individual and the pain that you brought to that individual. But if you have to watch it, it might cause a judge to limit judgment and to really ponder judgment, especially if it came to that of someone needing to be beaten. We don't do this today, but it's how they meted out judgment in their day. Number two, it was to make sure that his judgment was carried out and that also whoever was doing the beating, the 
I don't know if he'd be called an executioner in that sense because he's not taking the life, but he can make sure that that individual also had his hand restrained by the judge watching over him. Over time, it became the custom in Israel that they just didn't want to lose count. As I said, when we watched the Passion of the Christ, I was trying to count when Jesus was scurred and uh, I lost count or I had a hard time watching that portion of the movie. But for the Jews, it became a custom, 39 stripes and no more. They could go up to 40, but they did not want to be guilty of uh, hitting someone 41 times. So they, they took the better safe than sorry method in this judgment. And we find examples of this in the book of Acts of our beloved disciples who were beaten, commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus in Acts 5.40. And after they were beaten, they went out and they rejoiced, Acts 5.41, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Also in the book of Acts, it tells of Paul and Silas being beaten with rods thrown into the jail in Philippi and resulted in them singing worship songs uh, through the night at midnight, an earthquake uh, releasing them, but they didn't go anywhere. The Philippian jailer coming to faith in Jesus Christ because his prisoner stayed and remained because they had been captivated by the worship of Paul and Silas. But Paul would testify in 2 Corinthians 11:24 that from the Jews five times, I have received 40 stripes minus one, five times, 40 minus one. So just shy of 200 stripes. First Peter 2:20 he said, for what credit is it? If when you're beating for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, and if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. That's how Paul viewed it as being commendable before God. Now, all four Gospels speak about the scourging of Jesus Christ. It's found in Matthew 27, 26, Mark 15, 15, Luke 23, 16, and John 19, 1. And three of them use the word scourge. So we think of the cat of nine tails. Uh, that was a Roman device. And here's the thing. We think of this law that came down from the Jews, 40, maximum number, the tradition of the Jews, 39, because we don't want to go over. We need to remember, and this is what stood out to me uh, with the movie of the Passion of the Christ, that it, it wasn't the Jews doing the beating, it was the Romans. The Romans weren't held to this limitation. The Romans could do whatever they wanted. Uh, they may have, to appease the Jews, done 39 stripes. But the Bible specifically does not tell us the number of stripes that the Lord received. But number two, it does tell us that it's by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. And we were healed, 1 Peter 2, 24. 
So we may not know the exact number of stripes that the Lord received in our behalf, but the Bible is clear, both past tense and present tense, that by his stripes you were, by his stripes you are healed. So verse 4, grain and oxen, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And so this verse is just a simple reminder to the Israelis to keep their animals, um, really humanely to keep their animals. If they are treading out grain that they would make and take and make their bread with, they were not to hold back the animal from having a snack as he was working in their behalf. Um, my mom would have hated this, and I think many of us would, thinking that we're eating on grain that's been licked at by cattle. But uh, God said, let him have it. Now, Benjamin Franklin created a device of treading the grain in a barn, a two-story barn with holes, um, the boards not put tightly together on purpose that when the animals would tread the grain out, that the shaft and everything would stay on top, but the grain would fall through the floor, kind of preventing that licking up. And so he devised a way to maybe have a little cleaner and easier process to keep from having to willow, the willowing process of uh, dividing the shaft and the grain itself. But that's all that's mentioned here. You shall not muzzle an ox while it needs while it treads out the grain. Now, Paul takes it twice in two different passages. He applies it to the work of the church and those who are doing the work of ministry. So he takes this really an obscure one verse that appears in Deuteronomy, and he goes on and says in 1 Corinthians 9, 8 through 11, saying, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same thing also? As it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it the oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this was written that when he who plows should plow in hope, he who threshes, in hope to be a partaker of this hope. And if we sow spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap material things? So he uses this one little verse, talking about really to humanely deal with the animals in the days of Moses and Israel, and says we can have spiritual application of this, that those who are sowing spiritual things should then have a hope of reaping material things in this world. First Timothy 5, 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For your scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. So when a church is able, they should compensate their elders, their pastors, for those who serve the fellowship exceptionally well, Paul even said they're worthy of a double honor, twice the normal pay. I don't know if that's a standard we have today, but Paul uh, mentioned it here. Paul qual 
quantified these words saying, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So those who are giving forth, forth the word of God, spiritual truth to people, then there should be that anticipation of receiving their livelihood from that. And he moves right on. 5 through 10. I'm talking about a kinsman redeemer, although that Goel is not found in this section. But it said, if a man dwells together, brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So just the standard of a leveret marriage, and this was the custom of ancient Near East laws as well, but for the Jewish people, God was dividing up the land. Uh, dividing it out into 12 sections, the 12 different tribes of Israel. There are 13 tribes altogether, but the tribe of Levi did not receive an inheritance because the Lord God was their inheritance. So God provided for the tribe of Levi in a different way. But the other 12 tribes, they not only divided up the land, this is the land of Natali, this is the land of Gad, this is the land of Judah, but within that, then each family got a portion of the land. And so they did not want to see the land lost to someone other than those within the family. This is a way to keep the name going. Although technically we know that if this brother went into his brother's wife after his brother died and they had a son, that technically it was the one who fathered the child, but as the inheritance would go in the name, so he would have his own inheritance and not necessarily the inheritance of his true father, but that of his father's brother. So it's a way to keep the land in the family name without it being kind of uh, messed up and went from family to family or even out of the family. But maybe a man doesn't want to take his brother's wife. So here we have the situation, 7 through 10. If the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. And the elders of the city shall call him, speak to him. And if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove the sandal from his foot, spit in his face, answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name will be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. So the man with one sandal. I like maybe a movie title, The Man from Snowy River, better. I wouldn't want to be known as the man with one sandal. 
But in Jewish law, they had this opportunity to help keep the inheritance in the family. And we have a perfect example of this being played out in the story of Ruth and Boaz. The book is only four chapters long, but it is in the fourth chapter we find exactly what Moses describes here in verses 7 through 10 of Deuteronomy 25 being played out in the story of Ruth and Boaz. In chapter 3, Ruth presented herself to Boaz and she asked that um, he would take her under his wing, meaning marry me, that this whole leveret marriage could take place, that I would have an heir for my dead husband. And Boaz was willing, but he said, there is a nearer kinsman than me. There's another guy in line, and he is ahead of me. So let me resolve this situation with him first. And so on the next morning, following Ruth's request, Boaz went to the nearer kinsman and told him that um, Naomi's land was coming available for the kinsman redeemer. Would you like to redeem the land? And the guy was very happy. He said, sure, I would love to redeem the land. And then Boaz kind of gave the rest of the story because he's holding back. He goes, oh, by the way, if you're going to redeem the land for Naomi, then you have to also marry Ruth. And that was a deal breaker for him. He said, I can't do that. The Targum is an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they wrote about this. Kind of gives a little better glimpse, maybe, of why the near kinsman did not want it. This is in the Targum. The response, the kinsman said on this ground, I cannot redeem it because I have a wife already and I have no desire to take another lest there should be contention in my house and I should become a corrupter of my inheritance. You redeem it for you have no wife for I cannot redeem it. So there's probably, you know, Taking an extra wife could cause, I'm thinking maybe just slightly contention in somebody's house. That could be an issue. But he didn't want to mess up his inheritance. And so Ruth 4, 7 through 12, Boaz received the nearer kinsman's sandal. And that sandal attested to his right to redeem Ruth as his wife. Where the nearer kinsman was unwilling, Boaz was very willing. And it's uh, been seen as a beautiful picture, although I will say it's kind of a skewed picture. A lot of times they talk about Boaz, and I've probably said it myself, being a picture of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. But... In the case of Jesus, there is not a nearer kinsman. Jesus didn't have to go to the Father and say, wait, I want to make sure the nearer kinsman doesn't want to redeem them first. So it's it's not a perfect picture because if Boaz was the nearer kinsman, then it would be a perfect picture. But Boaz was not the nearer kinsman. 
but it does become a good picture of the Redeemer with his own blood redeeming a bride to himself, which is you and me. 11 and 12, man, Moses is throwing everything in. Dirty tactics is what I titled this. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him, puts her hand out and seizes him by the genitals, you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall not pity her. So as I looked at this, there's a law in 1919, Deuteronomy 1919, basically the law of the Talion means that you should have equal punishment and limit this revenge that could take place. Make sure that the punishment fits the crime. But here, the woman appears to be attempting to destroy this man's ability to have children. That's the thought behind this. She's not only trying to help her husband win a fight, but she's trying to destroy her husband's enemy, which you read over and over again, your brother, so a fellow Israeli, to limit his ability to produce an heir. Someone would do that. Her hand was to be cut off, so I imagine that was a good solve right there. I don't know if too many of us, male or female, would like to have a hand cut off. But God also said, your eyes shall not pity her. Reminiscent of Deuteronomy 19.13, your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. So just an obscure, from our perspective, an obscure law. 13 through 16, dealing with just weights. God says you shall not have different weights in your bag, a heavy and a light. Now, it's not saying that it's like when I'm a pizza maker, so I make my own pizza crust. I don't do probably any other baking than that. That's my limit, but I can make pizza crust. I always go into the cups, measuring cups, and I go for the one cup measuring cup. Lily says I do it wrong because I just scoop it out and dump it in a bowl and she takes it off and slices it with a knife and has it nice and level. I'm not that concerned with it. She's the baker baker. She makes pies, cakes. I make pizza pie. But it's not saying that you can't have, you know, one cup, quarter cup, one third cup. You can't have the different measurings. What it's saying is one that's supposed to be a one cup, it's actually like seven eighths, but it says one on it. And so you have the one that you use when you're buying things. Hey, I don't want to get ripped off. This is the one cup. But when you're selling things, you're ripping people off and you're taking an eighth out of it each time. Who's got to know? It's just a little bit. So God says equal weights. Not a heavy, not a light. Verse 14, you shall not have in your house different measures, a large and a small. You shall have perfect and just weights, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land. God tied this to their longevity of their life even, and of the people, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God has given you. For all who do such things, who are 
all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. So we are to have just and righteous weights for buying and selling. We're to have the same weights. Proverbs rambled on this a little bit. And Proverbs often is just one verse here, one verse there, maybe two or three at a time. But they talked about the scales and weights three times at least. Proverbs 11.1, 1, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You want to delight the Lord? Sure. We'll have just weights. Proverbs 16.11, honest weights and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. That's what God does. He has honest weights and scales. Proverbs 20.10, diverse weights and diverse measures. They are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So weights and measures, um, talking about poundage or maybe measuring grain or liquid. Uh, doesn't matter what you're using to measure weight, a gallon of uh, fluid versus a cup of flour. God says, if they're diverse, they are an abomination to me. And then he closes out reminding Israel to remember the Amalekites. Texas, remember the Alamo. Remember what they did to us. The battle cry, this is a battle cry. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, verse 18, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear. When you were tired and weary, he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of the Amalekite from under heaven, you shall not forget it. So we were first introduced to Joshua in the Bible when the Amalekites came out and attacked in this fashion. Moses told Joshua to take the men and go battle against them. So our first introduction of the Amalekites when they came and attacked Israel in this situation, we find Joshua battling, though they were victorious, he did not defeat them or utterly um, annihilate them. And God said to Joshua, he promised Joshua, I'm going to handle this one for you. So he made a pledge to Joshua. Now God passes it on to the children of Israel. He says, when you're settled in the land, when God has given you all that he has promised to give you, and there'll be a day when I will call you to come and do battle against the Amalekites. That day came when they had their first king, King Saul. In 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore take heed to the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Now we have seen in a horrific attack like this by Hamas over Israel where 
nothing mattered. And they were killing anything, man, woman, infant, and nursing child. And so it's very horrific, the judgment that God was asking King Saul to do. But it was judgment from the Lord that he was going to use his people to accomplish. But Saul failed to accomplish the task that God had given him. He kept the best of the animals of the Amalekites. He kept Agai, the king of the Amalekites, alive while destroying everything that was despised and worthless in their eyes. So if it had no value to him and his soldiers, they destroyed it. But if it looked like it had value, they kept it. And the Amalekites remained a thorn in Israel's side until they were subdued in the days of David. But some believe that Haman, the Agite, the enemy of Israel during Queen Esther's day, was a descendant of Amalek. They call him Haman, the Agagite, and they tie it to this king of the Amalekites, Agai, and try to tie those together. So because Saul was disobedient to the command of the Lord, then the Amalekites continued to be a thorn in the sight of Israel from that day forward. So this chapter, in reverse order, reminds us that we are to do what the Lord commands us to do, even if it takes years in fulfillment. So God gave the command here. Remember the Amalekites. God didn't require them until the day of King Sauce. This was hundreds of years later. Sometimes we try to get ahead of God. Sometimes he may call us to do something. For example, when I felt the call of God to preach his gospel, I was 28 years old. It was like four months after my dad had passed away. I'd already been praying and asking for almost a year what the Lord would have me to do. I had planned if by the age of 30, the Lord gave me no definite call upon my life, that I would go into business as a Christian businessman. I was already running work. That was my thought behind that decision was I was already running work for every employer that I worked for up to that time. Why not um, get paid for doing it and do it for myself? So that was the thought. Lord, if you don't call me. And uh, I kind of set out from 27 to 30. But at 28, he definitely put the call in my heart. That day I went forward at church and I told the pastor at a Baptist church over in Libertyville, I said, now I know what the Lord wants me to do, but I don't know how or where. So I just knew the call. But now it was the process. That process for me until I became the pastor here at this church took 11 years. So it took time in order for that to see its fulfillment in my life. But during that time, I strived to stay faithful to the call that God had placed upon me. So even if it takes years, we are to be obedient to the God's command over our lives. We are also to have just weights or to deal rightly with others. I mean, we don't walk around with measuring weights and got a bag of weights right here, got my measuring cups over here. We don't do that today, but we can deal rightly with people. We're not to use dirty tactics against our enemies. 
Though they may use them against us, we are not to respond in kind. We are to help our brother succeed, treat animals humanely, and we're not to limit or go beyond the excess of the limits of God's laws. So chapter 26, our tithe, really talking a lot in the opening chapters about giving, and then uh, verses 16 through 19, God calling Israel a special people, a special nation once again. So the first 15 verses really talking to Israel about And the first section, verses 1 through 10, their very first tithe, think about this. There would be a time when they come into the land of promise and they have their home and they planted their crops and they picked the crops. And now for the very first time, they go and present their offering to the Lord. That would be a big deal. It would be like... um, thinking of my dad's church and going from the process of buying a five acre piece of land to everybody one Sunday morning out in the cornfield uh, with a shovel painted with gold. It wasn't a real gold shovel, but painted with gold paint on it and uh, breaking ground. My dad so happy, so pleased in his leisure suit. They were in back then, uh, but I remember it. But not just going from the breaking of the ground, but having the first service, dedicating that place to the Lord. Kind of that sense here in verses 1 through 10, the tither's pledge when he gives his first tithe in the land of promise. And it shall be when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, and you possess it and you dwell in it, that you take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. So go to the tabernacle, ultimately go to the temple. But at this time, it was the tabernacle. The first uh, place the tabernacle was set up was in Gilgal, and then it was moved to Uh, Shechem and a couple of other places before it ended up in Jerusalem. But here they were to bring the tithe to the Lord, to the tabernacle. Verse three, you shall go to the one who is the priest in those days and say to him. So they had some, they had their little three by five card. They could memorize it or they would have their card that they would read. Today we'd pull out the smartphone. Say, wait a minute, I got to say this. And we'd read it off our smartphone. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, my father was a Syrian about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there. Few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, laid hard bondage on us. And we cried out to the Lord our God, the God of our fathers. The Lord heard our voice, looked on our affliction, our labor, and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs, and with wonders. 
And he has brought us into this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given to me. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you and your house and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. So just kind of picture that. This was, they're talking right here, the very first first fruits offering. That had to be a big deal. But think about this. As a child grows up, gets married, has his own family, and then has his own customs. And the husband and wife, they blend a family together. They develop their own customs. There would be for them then, not technically the first first fruits, but for them it would be a first fruits, the first time they get to go and give their offering to the Lord. So this is something that could be perpetual as well as we desire as parents to raise up our children to know the Lord, that they would follow in faith and be able to uh, conduct themselves in such a way as people of faith. And so it's something that could be passed on as well. Now, he refers to Jacob as the Syrian. And he went down into that area. That's where he fetched his two brides. He went there for one, ended up with four. So I said two, Leah and Rebecca, but he ended up with both Leah and Rebecca's handmaids as well. So he ended up with four brides altogether. But that's not what he's referring to here of him roaming around. That was 20 years of Jacob's life. What he's talking about was when the famine was two years into the seven years of famine, when he discovered that Joseph was alive and ruling down in Egypt, and he took his family, 75 in all. They were small in number, but God grew them into a great nation and then brought them ultimately 400 years later into the promised land. So it was uh, closer to 500 years. They went down and the Bible tells us that they came out of Egypt 430 years to the day that they entered in. 430 years later, they came out. But then the first generations refused to go into the promised land. So you have another 40 years getting our number to 470. But now they're in the land or they will be. And God brought them out with a great and outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders, brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey, and they were to celebrate this first, first fruit offering was to be a joyous celebration, not only with their family, but with the Levites, with the stranger in their midst. God always wanted to remember others. Deuteronomy 16:14 You shall rejoice at your feast you and your sons your daughters your male servants your female servants the levite the stranger the fatherless the widow who are within your gate let the party be great and greater than you might expect by inviting others who are not able to do such things let them share in the joy of your celebration in the year of tithing, the third year, 12 through 15, when you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing. So it has a specific uh, 
title for it. It's the year of tithing. And have given to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, so they may eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house. This reminded me of, it's kind of the saying that they do at Passover in Israel. Uh, They will even, Orthodox Jews will hire a cleaning service to come in, make sure that there's not any yeast in the house whatsoever. And then the father who did nothing during the whole time would take a, a feather of a bird and he would rub it over the top of something and kind of say that I have removed the yeast in the house. No yeast is in this house. And so here there is that application. This is the tithe. Lord, I haven't held anything back. I've removed the holy tithe from my house. Also, I've given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me, I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of them when in the morning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven. Bless your people, Israel, and the land that you have given to us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the year of tithing was the third year, Deuteronomy 14:28. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce that year and store it up within your gates. So this tithe was for the local community. That way, those who were the Levites, the fatherless, the widows, the stranger, they would also have provision, but it was also a great celebration. They were to rejoice. They were to celebrate. It was to be a grand celebration of God's provision, but also of God's of future expectation of God's blessing 1429, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Although there are many reasons for bringing their tithe to the Lord too, I'll mention first the giving of the tithe. There was a reminder of God's provision. And thus they were to give their tithe. They were to say, behold, I've brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given to me. Lord, I'm just giving back to you what you have given to me. Second, they called for the Lord to bring continual blessing to their lives, saying, 26.15, look down from your holy habitation from heaven, bless your people Israel, the land which you have given to us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus promised in Luke 638 that the Lord well first Jesus said give and it will be given to you good measure pressed down shaken together running over that it will be put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use how interesting it will be measured back to you God says I hate diverse weights and measures they're an abomination to me and Jesus says Whatever you measure out and give, that's what's going to be measured back to you. So if you're skimpy on one side, it's going to be skimpy back. Just know this. 
I just found that interesting. I didn't tie the two together. My dad used to like say, like to say, you cannot outgive God. Scripture reminds us in Malachi 3.10 to bring all the tithe into the storehouse. This is actually a great example of that because the tither, he proclaims that I have removed everything out of my house. I haven't used it for any other purpose. I brought it in the year of tithing. That would specifically be there for the use of the city, provision for that city. And we close out 16 through 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes, these judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God. And you shall walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and obey his voice. Also today the Lord has proclaimed to you to be his special people, just as he has promised you. And you shall keep all his commandments that you that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise and name and honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. So they made a covenant with the Lord. And God said, keep it with all your heart and with all your soul. Walk in my ways, keep my statutes, keep my commandments. Obey my voice. And God says, I've made a promise to you. You are to be my own special people. Now Israel failed many times in this regard, but God never failed in his promise toward them. Although Israel had failed and will continue, and though we fail, just know that God never fails in his promises. But it should be that we should strive to walk in his ways, to keep the statutes, the commandments, the judgment of God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, obey the voice of the Lord. And you might ask, how do you hear the voice of God? Well, read his word and let the Lord speak to you. First Chronicles 17, 22 there's a prayer back to the Lord saying, For you have made your people Israel, your own special people, forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Once again, in reverse order, we've seen that God, holy people Israel, was to walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments. They were to obey his voice at all time. And Part of their obedience was bringing all the tithe to the Lord, whether it would be at the temple or at the city gate, every third year at the city gate. Other than that, they had their temple tithes. And know that they went to, three times a year, they went to worship at the temple. So this is just talking about the first fruits on the third year of every third year that there was a special offering that went in and so that's kind of an interesting thought. There was God promising abundance, and that abundance could be um, used to bless the people there in Israel. So there are some things that we can learn from these two chapters, although it's part of the Old Testament. We learned that there was a law of limiting 
the scourging, 40 blows and no more. But we also tie that to the scourging that Jesus received, although we don't know, the Bible is silent as to the number of blows that he received. If they held to Jewish tradition, it would have been 39 blows. If they held to Jewish tradition and gave him 39 blows and used a Roman cat of tails, that would have had nine stripes at the end of it. Then you have to multiply every blow by nine. We've seen the importance of a kinsman redeemer and related that a bit to Jesus Christ being our kinsman and how he has redeemed us to the Father to be part of the family. We've also looked at the importance of obeying the command of God, the Amalekites, even if it takes years, and it took years by the time this was dealt with. Ultimately, we could take it all the way down to where not only King Saul, King David dealing with it, but if Haman was actually an Amalekite, uh, Judah went into captivity, and it was after 70 years of captivity that God would deal with Haman. So they remained a thorn in the side. For us, just remember if God puts a word on our heart, we should strive to walk in accordance to that word, even if it takes years to accomplish it. And then our tithes and offerings. It's important that we support the work that the Lord has called us to here in this community. And it could be beyond this community through other uh, mission organizations and such. But to know what we're uh, doing to bring all the tithe into the storehouse, knowing that we are God's special people. And Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the things that we can learn from the book of Deuteronomy today, looking at chapters 25 and 26. Lord, we are not perfect people. And Israel failed in many of these areas that you commanded them in. And Lord, we have failed in many of maybe similar areas or other areas. But we thank you, Lord, that though we may fail in our commitment to you, you never fail in your commitment to us. Help us, Lord, to be righteous and strive to walk rightly in this world, even when the world doesn't even know if there is a God. Help us to live before others because we know, Lord, that you are true and that, Lord Jesus, you are coming again. Help us to be a witness in these last days. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you.